Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we will be considering Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. These are the words of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us and bring us both the meaning and the power of these words that we would understand and that we would be strengthened and encouraged by your Holy Spirit that we might be your faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with these words, we begin the last section of the Olivet Discourse. So this is the concluding section. And it concludes with the theme of Jesus as the judge of the nations. You see here it says that he will sit on the throne of his glory. Uh, when he comes in his glory, he will sit on the throne of his glory. It says all the nations will be gathered before him, and he is going to separate them one from another as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. And of course, the Greek word for judgment, which is krisis, the word we get crisis from, is a word that basically means to sort out or to separate, to distinguish this from that. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. And then the very last verse of the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, chapter 25, verse 46, gives us the culmination of this passage where it says that the wicked will be cast into everlasting uh, judgment, uh, but the righteous will be brought uh, into everlasting life. Now, what I want to do today is to talk about the big picture aspects of Jesus as judge of the nations. Next week, we will look into more of the details which Jesus gives us in the middle of this section. Now, when we hear things like this, the Son of Man coming, sitting on the throne of His glory, the nations gathered before Him, separating them one from another, separating sheep from goats, and we hear about some going into everlasting judgment and other into everlasting life, we automatically assume as modern evangelicals that Jesus has to be talking specifically about the final judgment on the last day. Now that is part of what he is talking about, but that is only one part of what he is talking about. What we need to remember, what we as modern evangelicals need to recover from the historic church, from earlier generations, uh, indeed even in our own country, is this. Christ's reign and his judgment of the nations is a process. It is not a one-time event. Scripture portrays the reign of Christ and his judgment of the nations as beginning in the middle of history and continuing on as a historical process which culminates in the final judgment on the last day. Our text is describing that entire process, the entire process of Christ's historical judgments, which began 
with his judgment on apostate Judea in 70 AD, and which extend until their culmination and perfection in the final judgment on the last day, which is the day of the bodily resurrection unto life or unto damnation. Now, because the modern evangelical church has tended to take everything and to push it to the second advent, we, take, we tend to take all the aspects of Christ being Lord, Christ reigning, Christ judging, and we push all of that to the second advent instead of beginning it where scripture begins it with Jesus' first advent, his resurrection and his ascension, we shove it all off to the end and make it all happen there. That's the default position of the modern evangelical church. That was not the position of our forefathers in the faith who founded this country back in the early 1600s. That was not their understanding at all. But for the last 150 years, that really has been the reigning understanding in the evangelical church in America. Now, in reaction to that, what we have seen in more recent time has been a group that has gone to the other extreme. In other words, they have seen that the evangelical church is in a ditch, theologically speaking, by shoving everything off to the second advent, the, the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And, and they have looked and rightly seen in scriptures that, wait a minute, a lot of these things that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse, a lot of these things that are spoken of in the New Testament are things that are referring to the first advent of Christ. And so they have gotten out of one ditch, they've run all the way across the road and ended up in the other ditch, and they are what is called full preterists. In other words, they believe that all the prophecies of the New Testament are referring to things that occurred in the first century. All the judgments, all the resurrection, all of that kind of stuff all occurred back in the first century. And so they look forward then to no final return of Jesus Christ, no bodily return of Jesus Christ, no final judgment on the last day, and, and those kind of things. Now, and I've mentioned this before, making the mistake that the modern evangelical church does of pushing everything off to the second advent, it's a mistake. But it is not a mistake that takes one outside the historic Christian faith. You can say the Apostles' Creed and mistakenly push things off to the second advent that really belong as beginning in the first advent. Full preterism, though, saying there is no final resurrection, no final judgment, no bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so forth, that is not just a mistake. That takes you outside of the historic Christian faith. But what we're seeing then is two extremes. What Scripture teaches us is neither one of those extremes. It teaches us, yes, Jesus is bodily returning. That's what the angel said in Acts chapter 1. As the disciples watched the Lord Jesus bodily ascend up into heaven, the angel said, you will see him so come. In the same way, you will see the day will come when Jesus will bodily return. There will be a final judgment. That will also be the day of the bodily resurrection of everyone who has ever lived. And some will be resurrected unto damnation, others resurrected unto eternal life. That is all true, and the church has confessed that accordingly in all of the creeds, beginning with the Apostles' Creed. But it is not true that judgment and the reign of Christ and so forth wait till that day. They begin with a Jesus 
ascending to the Father in the first century, and they continue as a historical process, which is then perfected and culminated in the final judgment on the last day, and that is what we need to understand. Again, Scripture portrays the reign of Christ and his judging of the nations as beginning in the middle of history, specifically in the first century, and continuing on as a historical process which culminates in the final judgment on the last day. So look at verse 31. It describes two events. One, the Son of Man coming in his glory with the angels. And two, Christ sitting on his throne of glory. And it describes these two events as being coterminous. They happen at the same time, or rather, one of them follows immediately on the other. So, the coming of the Son of Man referred to here is when he sits down on his throne of glory. So the question is, when did Jesus sit down on his throne of glory? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that was when he ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. Mark 16, 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to the disciples, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. His ascension is when Jesus sat down on his throne of glory. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. This man, this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Okay, is that talking about the first advent or the second advent? When Jesus offered himself as an offering for sin. First advent, right? That's his crucifixion. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's his ascension. And what's he doing now? Waiting from that time forward till his enemies are made his footstool. That's describing a process. As a result, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, this is the uh, salutation portion of Revelation. It's where John is saying to the disciples who this letter is from. It's not part of the vision. This is not part of the apocalyptic stuff. This is John saying, hey, all you Christians, all you disciples here in the first century, let me tell you who this letter is from. It's from me, John, John the Apostle. But he also says this letter is also from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the one who has told you the truth, the firstborn from the dead, the one who was resurrected, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Present tense. 2,000 years ago, before the events of the book of Revelation, before you get into the vision, John says, just as much as Jesus is the faithful witness, how much is he the faithful witness? 50%? 60%? 100%. The firstborn from the dead, how much is Jesus the firstborn from the dead 2,000 years ago? 50%? 100%. He also says, he's just as much the ruler of the kings of the earth. That was a present fact 2,000 years ago. But we see, again, it's a process. He has all authority. He is by right ruler of all the kings of the earth. He is by sovereignty ruler of all the kings of the earth. He presides. He judge. But bringing all the kings of the earth to the point where they acknowledge him and receive him and worship him as the, king, uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth, that is a process which is described as making his enemies his footstool. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, and so I won't do it in detail, but I will remind you very quickly. Footstool doesn't mean a place of contempt. We get a picture of a footstool. We think of somebody putting their muddy boots 
up on the footstool. And so we think of, it kind of gets a picture of somebody that is disdained, somebody that is tramped down, and somebody that is being uh, really judged. But that's not the meaning of footstool in the scripture. The footstool was the same thing as the mercy seat in the holiest of holies. It was the golden slab on top of the Ark of the Covenant that is called the mercy seat. It is also called the footstool of God. Because the picture that's created in the Old Testament is that God sits on the wings of the cherubim. So he sits on the wings of the cherubim, which are up above the mercy seat, and that puts his feet resting where? On top of the golden slab, the mercy seat. Why is it the mercy seat? Because that's where the blood goes on the Day of Atonement. So it's also called the footstool of God. So this is not some old uh, uh, footstool which is to be dumped upon. This is a golden slab where the blood goes. This is where mercy comes and meets uh, judgment. This is where life comes and meets death. This is where the love of God comes and shows itself. That was the footstool of God. Now, it also says in the scripture that the earth is God's footstool. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. So it shows God is being too big for heaven to contain him. And so heaven is his throne. And it's like, well, his head sticks up out of heaven. It can't hold him. His head sticks up out of the top of heaven. And heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool. The footstool of God is described as the place where we worship God, worship him at his footstool. And so when you put all that together, you see that what was in the holiest of holies was a picture of what is cosmically true. The universe and the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain God. But heaven is his throne, and the earth is his footstool, and the earth is where we are to worship him. And just as the blood went on the mercy seat or the footstool in the holiest of holies on the day of the atonement, where did the blood go on the real day of atonement, the day that Jesus Christ died? Well, it went on the footstool. It went on the mercy seat. It went on the earth, the place where God's mercy and forgiveness come. And so to make his enemies his footstool means to make Jesus' enemies his believers his worshipers, his disciples. That's what it means. Now, remember, we hear here about the Son of Man coming in his glory. And every time you hear the word coming, you have to remember there were multiple comings of the Lord in the Old Testament. But the first question you need to ask yourself when you hear about the Son of Man coming is where is he coming? Because not all of his comings are to the earth. Some of his comings are elsewhere. And the coming of the Son of Man is a quote from Daniel 7, which describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds unto the Ancient of Days in heaven. Daniel 7:13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. It's a coming unto heaven. It's not a coming to earth at all. It's a coming to heaven to be enthroned. It's a description of the ascension. So when he comes to the Ancient of Days, then Jesus is given king, the kingdom and authority over all the nations. Daniel 7, 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? To what end? To what purpose? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And then it states it again. His dominion is everlasting. It's never going to stop. It shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. In other words, it shall overcome all things. So that is the coming that's referred to here, the coming of the Son of Man in his glory and the angels with him. So that is when Jesus began to judge the nations. Now, 
I want to go to three other New Testament texts because I want you to be able to triangulate. It's very important here that we get the big picture because I would tend to say that if there's any truth, any truth of Scripture, which the modern church just desperately, desperately needs to recover, it's this. And so I want to help you triangulate and understand that you don't just get this from one text in the New Testament. You get it over and over again. The first text I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26. This is what Paul says. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the final resurrection. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruit, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. That's the final resurrection of all people. So what coming is being talked about there? That is talking about the bodily coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, which is also described specifically as being the day of the final resurrection. Then it says, then comes the end. Now the word here is telos. It's not the word end, meaning everything stops, everything's over. Telos is the word we get teleology from, which is the study of goals and purposes. The telos means the goal. So it says, then comes the end, not the finality of all things, but to tell us the goal. Then the goal is reached. What is the goal? It tells us, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. That's the goal. That's the goal of the kingdom. That's the goal of history. For Jesus to restore everything that was lost in Adam's sin. So the goal is for Jesus to deliver the kingdom to the Father. The Father delivered the kingdom to Jesus in the first century when Jesus ascended to the Ancient of Days. But that wasn't the telos. That was a means to an end. What's the goal? The goal is for Jesus to deliver the kingdom back to the Father. The Father gives the kingdom to the Son for the Son to perfect the kingdom. For the Son to take this fallen earth and to transform it by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel and the life of the church into the kingdom of God in the full sense, in full flower. A world full of people who own Jesus Christ, who love Jesus Christ, who live by the power of the Spirit, who live according to the word of God, who with Jesus say the will of God is their highest hope and their highest good, and who love one another. That's what Jesus is to do with the kingdom. And what is he going to do on his final return? Abolish or put an end to all rule, authority, and power. It doesn't mean that going forward in eternity, there's no rule, authority, and power. What it means is temporal rule and authority and a power that has been established in this age, all of that will come to an end. And it says that he will put down the last enemy. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So it is not the case, the modern evangelical church tends to think, that Jesus will put down death for his people through the rapture of his church and evacuate his church out, put down death for his people, and then begin to reign and then begin to put his enemies under his feet. No, it's the opposite. Jesus puts all of his enemies under his feet. He transforms the world. He converts the world. He brings the world to faith. See, at the end of this process, the last enemy to be vanquished is death. At that point, the kingdom is perfected. And Jesus will turn to his Father and give a perfected kingdom 
to the Father. And so you see that we have two different comings described here between Matthew 25, 31 and, and 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Matthew 25, 31, that coming of the, Lord, of the Son of Man is when Jesus receives the kingdom. That's when the Father gives the kingdom to the Son. The coming of Jesus described in 1 Corinthians 15 is when the Son gives the kingdom back to the Father. And in between, you have at least 2,000 years of process, thousands of years of Jesus reigning, thousands of years of Jesus bringing his enemies to be uh, his footstool, that is, to be his worshipers. So that's what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is a very, very valuable passage because, number one, there's no apocalyptic language in this passage. There's nothing here about the moon turning to blood, the sun not shining, stars falling to the earth. There's nothing here about elements melting with fervent heat. There's nothing here with the sky being rolled back as a scroll. There's nothing here about flying scorpions. We don't need to start talking about helicopters. We don't have to get into that stuff. This is all straightforward language. And Paul covers in the span here of four verses from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the resurrection of mankind on the last day. He gives you the whole panorama of that age. So this is a cornerstone. This tells you the nature of history from the resurrection of Christ unto the last day. It describes the reign of Christ and his judgment of the nations which culminate in the last day. Okay, the next text I want us to look at is Psalm 110. The reason why I want us to look at this one is because it not only addresses what we're talking about, but it is the most quoted Old Testament text in the entire New Testament. In fact, Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost in the very first Christian sermons. Again and again and again, the New Testament writers tell us, if you want to understand who Jesus is, and if you want to understand what he's done, and if you want to understand what he's doing and what he's going to do, you have to understand Psalm 110. So let's read it. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Peter quotes Psalm 110 in his Pentecost sermon as being fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. All of this occurs at the same time as Christ is made high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice verse 4. At the same time that God the Father says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, he also says to the Son, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When did that occur? It occurred when Christ ascended. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. Christ entered the presence behind the veil, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what this means is this. Christ became king at the same time that he became high priest. And if Christ is not high priest, what does that mean? It means you're still in your sins. If Christ isn't high priest now, you're still in your sins now. What that means is this. If Christ isn't king over the nations, then you aren't forgiven. Because he becomes king precisely at the same time that he becomes high priest. And if he's not high priest, then you're not forgiven. So if Christ is the king of the nations now, then you aren't forgiven now. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't understand and embrace that Christ is king of the nation right now, then you're not forgiven. I'm not saying that. Thank God our forgiveness does not depend upon the perfection of our understanding of biblical theology. But it does depend on biblical theology being true, whether or not we understand it. If Christ is not king over the nations, you are not forgiven. And I think that really brings it home to us as evangelicals because he becomes king when he becomes high priest. Okay, what happens once Christ is at God's right hand? Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will execute kings in the day of his wrath. And he will judge among the nations and will fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Notice, this is talking about temporal judgment. For the final judgment does not deal with cutting off people's heads, executing people, or filling places with dead bodies. The final judgment deals with everyone being resurrected either unto life or unto damnation. The third text I want us to look at is Psalm 2. I want us to look at that one because while it is not the most quoted text from the Old Testament in the New, it is one of the most quoted texts. And this is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. Okay, so verses 1 through 3 give us the setting. And the setting is the nations and the rulers of the nations raging against the idea of God being God and them being accountable to God and Jesus being Lord. And so they take their stand against God, and they take his stand against anointed. Anointed means Christ. Christ is what, that's what it means, anointed one. So they take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. And they say, let us break their bonds in, in pieces and cast their cords from us. Verse 5 gives us the Father's response. The Father's response, number one, is that he laughs. Because this is futile. God's not 
scurrying around in heaven, crying out, plan B, plan B, quick. No, God laughs. The second thing God does in response is he speaks. He says, verse 6, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In other words, I have exalted Jesus to my throne in heaven. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. This is Jesus speaking here. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He also said to me, ask, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So verse 2 where it says, To the earth set themselves, and the rulers took counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. That is quoted by the apostles in Acts chapter 4 as being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is after Peter and John have healed the lame man in the temple precinct, and all the people have seen it. A crowd is forming. They're gathering lots of, uh, of followers, and the Sanhedrin call Peter and John in, and they threaten them, and they say, Teach no more in this name. So then the apostles gather with the disciples and they pray, Lord God, you are the one who by the mouth of your servant David said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ. They quote Psalm 2 and they say, God, you were the one who said this. And then they pray this, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, they're saying this was fulfilled when all the powers, both of Israel and the Gentiles, came together for one purpose, and that was to crucify the Son of God. Verse 7, which says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 7 is quoted by the apostles as being fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Now, you may wonder, well, which is it? The resurrection and the ascension were two events separated by 40 days. Which one is it? Well, the way the Bible presents the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus is as part A and part B of the same thing. Part A and part B of the exaltation of Jesus is like two sides of the same coin separated by 40 days. Well, why would they be separated by 40 days? Well, for our sake. Not for Jesus' sake, for our sake. For 40 days, Jesus appeared to the disciples. For 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, he encouraged them and built them up and prepared them for what was going to begin on the day of Pentecost. So the resurrection and ascension are part A and part B of the exaltation of Jesus. Paul quotes verse 7 in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, as being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. God has fulfilled, says Paul, God has fulfilled the promise to the fathers in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what we see is this, when we pull things together. Jesus, before he became Jesus, he was God the Son from all eternity. Jesus was the Son of God from conception in the womb of Mary. Jesus was the Son of God with power, the Son of God exalted, beginning with the resurrection. Romans 1.4 God the Father declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. 
That's not when Jesus became the Son of God. That is when Jesus became the Son of God with power, the Son of God exalted, the Son of God with authority over all the kings of the earth. So this, the Son of God with power is a title. And when Jesus became Son of God with power is upon his resurrection. That's how God the Father said he is the Christ. He is the Son of God with power. All power and authority is his. Okay, Psalm 2 and verse 8. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's what Christ received upon his ascension. Verse 9 tells us what Christ does to rebellious and unrepentant nations. He breaks them with a rod of iron. You shall break them as potter's vessels. Okay. The New Testament tells us that Jesus reigns and conquers by two means. Number one, by the sword that proceeds from his mouth. That's in Revelation 19. It says that he conquers and slays the nations by the sword that proceeds from his mouth. The sword that proceeds from his mouth is the word of the Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, the word of the gospel. So the first way Jesus reigns and conquers his enemies is by the word of God, the word of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. The second way that Jesus reigns is with the rod of iron. And the rod of iron is judgment. Now, our first example of Jesus reigning in history... Our first example of what that looks like on the ground, what does the sword of his mouth look like on the ground, what does the rod of iron look like on the ground in real time, is the first century. The 40-year period from his ascension until the destruction of Jerusalem. What do we see? We see the gospel being preached. We see Paul reasoning from the scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Christ. We see God pouring out his spirit. We see God by the spirit calling people to Jesus Christ, bringing them to faith. We see what it looks like for people to be pierced by the sword which comes out of Jesus' mouth. We see that on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches Jesus as Christ. And Christ, the closest word we have for Christ is king. After the people hear this sermon, 3,000 say, they're, it says they're pierced in their hearts. They're pierced in their hearts and they say, what shall we do? Peter, tell us what to do. How do we repent? How, how do we turn to God? What, what, what do we do? How do we embrace Jesus? And he says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven you. Turn, you and your families, you and your children, turn to Christ. So they're pierced. That's what it looks like, the sword from Jesus' mouth. Now, we also see the opposite result with the trial of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. There also, it says, people were pierced. They were pierced by the word from Jesus' mouth because Stephen spoke the gospel. They were pierced too. But what did they do? A complete opposite from the day of Pentecost. It says that they stopped their ears and they cried out with a loud voice and they rushed upon uh, Stephen and they stoned him. So you get these two results from the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. But everybody ends up getting pierced one way or another. What does the rod of iron look like? The rod of iron looks like exactly what we see in Judea in 70 AD. It looks like uh, economic distress and political turmoil and, and civil war. It looks like famines. It looks like earthquakes. It looks like so-called natural disasters. And it looks like uh, military sieges and wars. And it looks like a nation falling. 
That's what the rod of iron looks like. And so we see patience from Jesus, mercy from Jesus. This is the nation that has already crucified him. For 40 years, Jesus testifies and speaks the gospel to this people. This is a people who've been brought up on the word of God. They know the word of God. They already know the word of God. For 40 years, different apostles are put to death and other Christians are put to death. For 40 years, Jesus keeps speaking the word of mercy to this nation. But ultimately, when you keep turning away from the word of the gospel, you harden. You either soften or you harden. And you harden and you harden and you harden until finally Jesus picks up the rod of iron and he brings it down. Notice the application of Psalm 2. Therefore, here's the point. Be wise, O kings. What, is it, what good is it to say be wise on the last day? On the last day, it's too late to be wise. He says, be wise and be instructed, kings and judges, everybody with authority. And of course, that includes everybody else, too. Kings and judges, be wise. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in Him with trembling. Kiss the Son, that is, honor Him as King, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Perishing in the way is historical judgment. Perishing in the way is not talking about being cast into the lake of fire on the last day. Perishing in the way means to perish now, here, in life, to come under the rod of iron. So that is the application to the rulers and judges of the earth. That is part of the gospel. Yes, you kings. Yes, you Congress. Yes, you Mr. President. Yes, you Mr. Chief Justice. 